you may have noticed a theme in the music in today's service, because this morning's message has brought us to a text that, other than John 3.16, may be the most well-known and memorized text of the New Testament. Although, I will say, it's too bad that folks who memorize verses 8 and 9 don't usually go ahead and memorize verse 10 along with it because it is all one comprehensive thought by the Apostle Paul. And so our text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Many of you know it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look into this portion of your perfect word, we ask that you would please just help us to to focus our hearts and minds on your Son, Jesus, and his work on our behalf. It's true we know that all things we have are are through him because all things were made by him and, and for him, and it's by him that all things consist. He is the very expression of the grace which we've just read about in this text. Lord, please Reveal him to us more clearly through your word. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to serve you by leading your church here. Please help me to follow Christ and to point others to him in all things that each one here would rely on him as the shepherd of their souls. Lord, please grant me the physical strength and the spiritual wisdom to preach your word with clarity and faithfulness and authority and for all us to seek to glorify you in all that we do. For it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Let's just begin this morning this way. If you were for some reason, to die today and found yourself standing before God, on what basis do you think he would find you acceptable? What is your hope of heaven? Why would the righteous judge of the world allow you to enter into glory? What or who are you trusting for eternal life? The various answers that could come from the sort of collective voice of professing Christianity would be things like, well, I've been living a, a righteous life. I love others and I'm, I'm kind, I'm charitable to those who need it. I'm a, I'm a good person. The good things I've done, I think, outweigh the bad things that I've done. I've been baptized. I'm from a Christian family. I'm a member of a church. But the Apostle Paul's message in this text is here to say anything, any 
answer that you have that begins with you and what you've done and what you are is ultimately an unacceptable answer. You will not be saved by your righteous life. Baptism and church membership will not grant you a place in glory. Your claim of loving others and being a good person, that is not going to impress God. Your only hope of being accepted by God is his love and grace and the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now this famous text, it is primarily not evangelistic. That is, it is written to those who have been saved so that they would know the basis of the salvation that they have. It's not really written in a way to show lost folks how to be saved, although certainly there are truths that can be drawn from it for that purpose. But those who are saved are saved by grace, through faith. Nothing about you, only what God has given you. Nothing you've done, it's only what he has done. So that you have Nothing to brag about. In fact, this text is even going to say that anything good you do is God himself working for you and in you and through you. There's no room for credit for anyone but God. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes this idea to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. He tells them, you see your calling, brothers. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those who are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul tells them all they have to do is look at themselves, look around their church, and know that God has chosen a bunch of nobodies, granting them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption through Jesus Christ so that none of them would glory in themselves before God. Whoever glories, let him glory in the Lord alone. So we dig into this famous text this morning. I'd encourage you to just put away any preconceived notions you have about the nature of salvation. Just open your heart to the truth of his word. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is going to teach us this. Salvation is the divine act of God alone in which he extends grace to a lost sinner, gives that sinner the gift of faith in Jesus, and then uses that saved sinner for his own glory. Now there's a lot to draw from the text, but three main ideas will do. First, Salvation is obtained by the grace of God. Verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
Salvation is obtained by the grace of God. Before we dive into that word grace, let's not overlook what it means to be saved. If you're saved by grace, if someone asks you if you're saved or you call yourself saved, let's make sure that we grasp the meaning of that term because it, saved from, from what? Saved from whom? To be saved is to be rescued. And you only understand the idea of being rescued if you understand the danger that you were in. So, for example, if you were drowning and a lifeguard plunged in to rescue you, you would understand being saved in terms of, well, I was saved from drowning. Or if you were trapped in a burning building and a brave firefighter defied the flames in order to bring you out to safety, you were rescued, you were saved from the fire. The salvation, the rescue that Paul is describing here in this text is to be saved or rescued from the wrath of God. I know it's been a couple of weeks ago now, but try to remember the context of Ephesians chapter 2. Glance up, remind yourselves what Paul says up there in verses 1 through 3. Right? You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were walking willfully in the way of Satan himself. You were fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of your mind. So that Paul says at the end of verse 3, you were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You were facing the righteous wrath of your creator. Verse 4, but God... Due to his mercy and love towards us, in verse 5, even when we were dead in sins, he's made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. That is, by grace you have been rescued from the righteous wrath of God that you deserve. The Bible is clear that what we deserve for our sin is death, followed by an eternal death of punishment in the Flames of hell. And we're tempted to respond to that by saying, well, that seems a little bit extreme. My sin doesn't deserve that. And yet God is holy. God is the righteous judge of the world. When he says that's what we deserve, perhaps the lesson we should take is not that God is wrong about how bad our punishment should be. The lesson that we should take from it is that God is right, but we're wrong just about how, how bad our sin really is. It does deserve that. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of Satan. We were willfully pursuing our own sinful desires. We were, like others, Paul says, abiding under the wrath of God. And what changed? It's not that you just up and changed your mind. What can that guy up in verses 1 through 3 do for himself? He's not going to seek God. He's not going to hear God. He's not going to believe God unless God himself intervenes. That is grace. By grace, you are saved. The word grace runs so opposed to all human wisdom. In human wisdom, we argue that death and hell aren't fair. But they are fair. You know what's not fair? 
grace. Grace is not fair. Literally, grace is undeserved favor. It is kindness that is showed to someone who has not earned it, who does not deserve it. Death and hell are fair because that's what we've actually earned. Grace intervenes to rescue us from the wrath of God. It is the ultimate act of love for people who deserve nothing of the sort. In fact, if you deserved it even a little bit, Paul wouldn't be able to say that it's grace anymore. If you deserved it because of something that you had done or something that you are, that would be work. If you get something good that you deserve, that's, you worked for it. You earned it. That's works. But if you get something good, you've done nothing to deserve, that's grace. It can't be both. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, said it like this. It is by grace. If it's by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, if it is of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, you either earned your salvation or you did nothing to earn your salvation It's either because you worked for it or because God's grace gave it to you. It's not a little bit of both. Grace and works are exclusive from each other. They cannot go together. They do not coexist. They destroy one another, Paul says. It's either grace or it's works. It's not both. If it's a little bit of work, it's not grace anymore. And if it's a little bit of grace, then it's nothing works anymore. And so which one is it? Paul says in the text, by grace you're saved. And he adds in verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast, because somebody would brag about it otherwise. Are you saved? If so, I I am glad, praise God, but you've got nothing to brag about. When someone says, I'm proud to be a Christian, a wise response might be, okay, explain that to me. My salvation is solely by God's grace. It is solely through the work of Christ. It's nothing for me to brag about. Where is the place for pride when you are being saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's glory? Where where is my pride there? How about instead of being proud of our Christianity, we're just proud of Christ because let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's him who's done this. Salvation is obtained by the grace of God. Second, salvation is secured through the gift of faith. Look again at verses 8 and 9 with me. Because we need to grasp something about the the grammar here, the structure of the, the verses here, in order to fully understand Paul's meaning. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is grammatically possible that when Paul says, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, 
that he's just being inclusive of, of everything, right? That it would be salvation is a gift from God. Grace is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Everything required to rescue you from God's wrath has been given you by God's grace as a gift. That is grammatically possible. And also it would be true, but it is not entirely clear that that's what Paul's trying to say here. It's also possible, and in fact, it is more likely that that phrase, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, is a parenthetical thought describing the nature of faith. Just imagine the end of verse 8, those, those words, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Imagine like they're in uh, parentheses. And so what Paul is saying in those verses is, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then uh, in that parenthetical thought, he's talking about faith and he's saying, that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Now, if that's as clear as mud to you, right, if you're having a difficult time following it, let me just say it like this. Paul is describing the source of our faith to say even that Faith is not something you conjured up in yourselves. It was given to you by God. That is the most likely meaning of the verse. And it's also in complete agreement with what the Bible says about faith. Additionally, this is vitally important because some people would hear, for by grace are you saved through faith, and they would think, oh, okay, well, then faith is the way that I get grace, faith, that act of believing, that act of trusting, that is what earns God's grace. But what did we just say about the idea of earning God's grace? It's not possible. So even faith, the act of believing, is in itself a part of God's gracious gift to us. You do not get grace because you believed. You believe because of God's grace. This is how the Bible presents faith. It's how the Bible presents belief. In Acts 13, 48, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. In Acts 18, 27, Apollos taught in the churches, and Luke says, quote, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Not that they had obtained grace by believing, but he was a help to those who had believed as a result of grace. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says it was granted on behalf of Christ for you to believe in him. Right? It was given to you to believe in him. Why does that matter? Well, first off, it matters because we need to be clear that salvation is of the Lord. All of salvation is of the Lord. Even the act of believing and trusting, having faith in him, is something that is given to us by his grace. Of course, that faith is something that has to be active. We're to live by faith. But let's be clear that living by faith is about God's worthiness and not about our own force of will. Faith is an expression of confidence put into action. You know, when you drive out onto a bridge, it's because you have confidence that the bridge will hold you, and you've put that confidence into action by going out onto the bridge. 
When you open a bottle of Tylenol, it's, you have some confidence that the company put acetaminophen in there and not, say, arsenic, right? And you put that confidence into action. You, you put money into the bank because you're putting confidence into action. You think the bank is trustworthy in order to, to keep it safe. Those are simple, daily acts of faith. But none of them are an expression of your own ability, your own force of will. Like, is Tylenol going to relieve your pain better if you believe in it more? Does extra confidence in the bank keep your money extra safe? Does your accumulated knowledge of engineering and construction, is that going to somehow make you safer as you cross the bridge? The successful expression of faith is not tied to the ability of the person who is expressing faith. It's based on the trustworthiness of the object of faith. That's important because so many people today, frankly, some of you today are trying to have faith in your faith. If you ever wonder about your salvation by asking yourself, well, is my faith big enough? Is is my faith strong enough? Please, stop thinking that way. Your salvation is not based on the strength of your faith, your own force of will. Your salvation is based on the ability of Jesus. He's the object of your faith. He's good enough. He's strong enough. He's trustworthy. Only Jesus can relieve the anguish of your troubled soul. Jesus is the the bridge that's strong enough to hold you. Step your life out on him. He's going to take you where you need to go. And trust your life to him. Know that it is safe and secure because he's trustworthy. He's good enough. He lived the life without sin, fulfilling the righteousness of God on your behalf. He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God in your place. He rose from the grave. And verses 5 through 7 of this chapter say you've been made alive with him. You're going to be objects of his gracious kindness for all eternity. There's nothing that you've done that will be acceptable to God. The work of Jesus for you is the only basis that God will find you acceptable. Jesus alone is your hope of heaven and your assurance of eternal life. In studying for this, I noticed that John MacArthur and H.B. Charles Jr. both share the same story in regard to this text. And I don't know where they got it from originally, but it's just too good not to share. They say this, there's a story told of a man who eagerly came very late to a revival meeting and found the workmen tearing down the tents where the meetings had been held. Frantic at missing the evangelist, he decided to ask one of the workers what he could do to be saved. And the worker, who was a Christian, looked at him and said, you can't do anything, it's too late. And horrified, the man said, what do you mean? How can it be too late? And the worker just looked at him and said, the work has already been done. There's nothing for you to do but believe it. Do you believe it? Do you have faith in Jesus? If you do, then you are saved by God's grace and you can thank him that God himself has instilled, has infused in your heart 
the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is obtained by the grace of God. Salvation is secured by the gift of faith. Third, salvation is accompanied by works for God's glory. Remember what we said about faith. Faith is the expression of confidence put into action. That action, living lives of faith, is something that Paul's not going to ignore because I think he understands there are some people who would, who would think, well, I, I'm saved by good works. And so he squashes that with this description of, no, salvation is by grace and even, even faith is a gift. But no doubt he also understands that some would say, well, God has saved me by grace. There was nothing for me to do. And so now there's still nothing I I need to do. I can do whatever I want. That's a vile thought. So after being clear that works can't save us, Paul is going to be just as clear that works are important. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But when you're saved by faith, that that faith is never going to be alone. It's going to be expressed. It's going to be demonstrated in good works. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. It is not the plan of God that he's going to save some undeserving people so that they would just go on living the same way. It is the eternal plan of God, Paul says he has before ordained, that sinners who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus are going to live their lives as an expression of their faith. They're going to live for his glory. We mentioned earlier some bad answers that people would give for why they should be acceptable to God. You know, I've been living a righteous life. I, I love others. I'm kind. I'm charitable to those who need it. I'm, I'm baptized. I'm a member of a church. And while none of those are the basis for how a person can be saved, all of those are expressions of how a saved person ought to live. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but once we're saved, that faith will never be alone. It's accompanied by good works. This is why James writes in James 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. In short, salvation does not come as the result of good works. Salvation is not somehow secured by your good works, but good works must always come as a result of salvation. There are two serious errors in regard to good works, which have sort of plagued Christianity for centuries. The first error is on one extreme in which people are led to a works-based salvation. Right, Earn your way to heaven by baptism and by communion and by confession and by repentance. And then do enough good works to keep yourself saved. The second error is on the opposite extreme, and it is much more common for us today. 
that we somehow see no connection between salvation and good works whatsoever. And in that view, you can lead someone in the sinner's prayer. You can pressure them to say that they believe in Jesus. You can then, you know, just award them your heavenly stamp of approval. And it does not matter if they actually live as an expression of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 offers the answer for both of those errors. You do not maintain or preserve your salvation by doing good works. You could never earn salvation by good works. It's not of your work. You've got nothing to brag about. If you did, it wouldn't even be of grace anymore. But on the other extreme, a person who outwardly professes faith in Jesus but refuses to submit their lives to his word, that they go on living the same sinful life they were living before professing faith in Jesus? We have no basis on to which to believe that such a person is even saved because salvation always, invariably, produces good works. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that salvation is entirely of God. Verse 10 explains, at least in part, why God has done what he's done. You recognize this. As Sovereign Grace Baptists, we love to point out election everywhere we can find it. God has chosen who he will save. But there is another aspect of God's sovereign choice here in verse 10. He saves them in order to produce good works. God has, it says, verse 10, before ordained that they should walk in those good works. It is unthinkable that a person who has chosen to salvation by God would somehow fail to live for the glory of God. Paul says, look at verse 10. He says, we are his workmanship. I love that word, workmanship. It's just an amazing word. It's a Greek word. I'm going to say the word. You're going to hear an English word in it. Poema. Do you hear an English word there? The English word based on this is the word poem, although a poem is a written work of art. But this Greek word poema means more than that. It, it's used to describe poems, but it's also used to describe other created works of art like statues or painting or architecture. No less authority than the Apostle Paul says that that word should be a description of your life when you are saved by grace. Not to earn salvation, but as a result of God's grace coming into your life, we ought to engage in good works for the glory of God to the extent that people look at our lives and say, that is a work of art that only God could make. Who else could take the raw materials of our rotten lives that are described up in verses 1 through 3 and turn them into lives of righteousness, living in faith, and loving the Savior Jesus. But now you have to be honest with yourself enough to ask, are you living out faith so that everything in your life is an expression of your confidence of Jesus, in Jesus put into action? Is that how you're living your life? Is your life that kind of workmanship? I'm afraid we're too often satisfied living less faithful lives than the grace-filled artwork which God has designed. 
We're unconcerned about his glory. We're unfaithful to his assembly. We're unwilling to submit to his commands. We're somehow sure that we're not really all that bad. Maybe this grace thing is is true for everybody else, but somewhere in the back of our minds, we're confident that, well, I'm good enough. I added a little bit to it. We're called to live faithful lives as his workmanship, his works of art created through the work of Jesus Christ. Is it possible that we're living out lives that look more like a kindergartner's coloring book? That our lives resemble prehistoric stick figures chiseled onto the wall of a cave more than it looks like the great piece of art that's fashioned to bring God glory? If we understand that we are saved from God's wrath, by God's grace, then you have to know with a certainty it is for God's glory. Whoever boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Look at what God has done in us. God himself has instilled faith in us, then called us to live faithful, even beautiful lives, not not for the purpose of boasting of ourselves, not so that we would brag in, our, in ourselves, but that we would bring glory to him. Y'all, that is not too high a calling for what God has done for us. This is what Paul wants us to understand as we look to Jesus in faith and love as our Savior. We have to know the kind of salvation that he has brought us. Salvation is the divine act of God alone in which he extends grace to a lost sinner, gives that sinner the gift of faith in Jesus, and then uses that saved sinner for his own glory as they live out those expressions of faith in Christ. 